Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. Hey, good morning, Mercy fam. Hey, before, uh, my name's Spence, one of the pastors here at Mercy. Uh, Before we jump into the message for this morning, I want to tell you uh, about, you know, we've started Christmas season. It's here. Like uh, my family put up the tree. I got all Clark Griswold yesterday, if those of you understand that. Lights were going everywhere. It was awesome. Uh, One of the things we do as a church to celebrate Christmas, uh, this is something we've done since way back in 2015 when we planted Mercy, not that long ago. But one of the things that we do is something that we call the Christmas Missions Offering. It's just a part of how we celebrate Christmas around here, and we do that by saying we want to give our best gift as a church family to God's mission this Christmas. And so the way we celebrate what God has done for us, that God came, you know, that's Christmas celebrating God came to earth. The way we celebrate that is by saying we want as many people in the world as possible to know about it. And so what we do, we take up an offering that 100% of that goes outside the walls, outside the ministries of Mercy Church to partner ministries um, both here in Charlotte and around the world. I mean, just last year, uh, the gift that you guys gave at Christmas Missions Offering allowed us to partner with a missionary that was engaging a brand new or a previously unreached people group in South Asia. And because of your gift, they were able to go and take the gospel. So another people group heard the gospel last year. That's just one part of what happened with that offering. So We're going to take it up um, on December 16th. We'll do it in here. You can actually give online today if you want to. Let me tell you how my families think about it. That might help you. Uh, The way we talk about it with our kids, similar to what I just said, we tell our kids uh, together we want to give our best gift as a family to the advancement of the gospel around the world, to God's mission. And so that's what we do when when we budget for the thing. And we let our kids in on that as we're budgeting gifts and everything else. We want our best gift to go to God's mission. You figure out what that means for you, but I would just encourage you, challenge you to get in on this. Um, Each year it has exceeded our expectations in terms of what people give to it. And then what we're able to do from it. We're able to partner with ministries here around the world. Uh, Man, it's really a joy to do. And so I hope you'll uh, join in with us on that. So uh, you can find that again, more info on our website, and we'll be talking about it more in the weeks to come. With that said, Let's get into it. Philippians chapter 2. If you got your Bible, get that out, turn it on, flip over, Philippians 2. This Christmas season, we're walking through the book of Philippians, and the reason we're doing this is because this letter puts front and center where joy comes from and how we can experience it. And here's why this matters. I feel like there's a couple of types of people that come through those doors every weekend, but especially Christmas season, um, a lot of people come through kind of going through the motions of Christmas. Uh, Christmas, if we're honest, is more about stress management and pleasing people than it is about joy, right? And I believe this is most of the people that'll, that'll come through. You know, you get the ugly sweater, you get the white elephant gift, you get the Christmas cards out, you got to make sure you get them out before Christmas because you don't want to be like the last person that sends their card out, sends like a New Year's card or something like that, you know what I mean? So we got to get those out, got to check them when other people send them, was ours better than theirs that they sent, right? You got to bake some pie, you got to do all the things and move on. And look, they're all good things, right? I love white elephant 
gifts, for example. I mean, I've both given and received live lobsters during white elephant exchanges, okay? I love playing that game, love Christmas stuff. I love it, all right? But look, the reality is Christmas can so quickly become distraction after distraction after distraction after distraction, and it's done, right? The whole thing we can kind of set up to distract ourselves from Christmas, And when we talk as a church about wanting to see an awakening happen in the soul of the the people of Charlotte, this is one of the ways we're talking about that, right? Like we want to refuse to let Christmas distract us from Christmas. And so I want to make this month, I want us to make this month a deep pursuit of and celebration of joy, of joy. That's why if you're new, we say this all the time, kind of at the start of a sermon series that Man, we want you to stick around for a few weeks because it about takes that long to figure out if that's the right, if a church is right for you. It takes a few weeks. But my hope is that by the end of this, you will experience joy in Christ. And in doing so, you'll know because by the end of the Christmas season, you won't be exhausted. You'll actually be refreshed and encouraged and invigorated by Christ and your faith in him. Uh, listen, there's another group, not just those of us that are normally distracted, There's another group that comes through that needs this letter about joy. You see, Paul wrote uh, this letter to Christians who, according to the end of chapter 1, they were suffering. And Paul himself, he's writing from prison. He's writing from suffering to suffering. I mean, in prison, there's no, like, white elephant exchanges, you know? It's like, uh, it's a dead rat. Do you want it or do you want to go to the pile? You know, it's not how that's going to go. There was a lot of suffering for Paul, for the Philippians, and some of you are suffering as well. Maybe you're not being persecuted for being a Christian. I get that. I mean, maybe you are. Maybe in your workplace, you're ostracized for that. Maybe among your friend group and your peers, you're ostracized for that. Maybe that is real for you, but maybe it's another form of suffering. Uh, maybe you're like my family, and we've lost two family members this year. Um, and those are people we love, and that really hurts. And Christmas, we spent with them, and so Christmas comes around, and, and that hurts because we miss them. It's going to be a hard year for us. Maybe it's not that, though. Maybe you just got some bad memories connected, whatever it is. Uh, listen, uh, maybe you're just kind of like, I don't even want to Christmas this year. I just don't even want to go through it. It's going to be painful. Here's what I know. I know that you and I don't need sentimentality. We need joy, the kind of joy that can lift some very real and very heavy burdens, and that's what we're going after today, okay? Uh, If I could give you an outline for our sermon, plain and simple, it'd be that we're going to see where joy comes from, where it comes from. I'm not talking about distracting, fleeting happiness, right? Not Christmas songs that distract you for a second, right? Not peppermint mochas that distract you for a second. Not one of the six billion Hallmark Christmas movies that all star a Canadian actor, right? We're not talking about those that'll distract you for a few seconds, We're not talking about fleeting happiness. We're talking about the source of joy that gives real comfort, real peace, and real life that really does change you. And we're going to talk about where we get that today. Then we're going to talk about how it changes you, right? When we get together, this isn't just a religious exercise. It's not a ritual we go through once a week. We believe that there is a transforming power that is extended to you and I from God And we think we'll be a different person as a result of experiencing that. We're going to talk about how God and his joy that he offers us in Christ, how it changes us. But then we're going to finish with where this joy goes. All right, because here's the thing. Joy 
in Christ has kind of a, a flow to it. You experience, if you want to experience God in his fullest and what he has for you, there's this joy that comes from its source, which is Christ, that comes in and it changes you, but you only experience it in its fullest when it goes out. And that's the outline we're going to work with today. It's kind of like, um, I've used this before a long time ago, kind of like the difference. I want you to see today almost like this joy from Christ being like a river. Joy comes from a source, changes us, goes out, right? It's, it's flowing, which is different than um, a pond, right? A pond would be a standing body of water. Doesn't go anywhere, right? It just fills up when the rain falls, right? And when there is drought, the water level goes down, right? Rivers, however, are constantly moving. And I think this is my favorite uh, kind of picture metaphor to help explain why people miss out on the joy that Christ offers them. Because listen, we think of our spiritual lives like they are ponds. When things are going well, the rain is falling, the water levels start rising, like we're spending time with God. It's like, man, we are singing with the angels. Hark the herald angels sing. Things are going really good, right? And we're giving, and every time we open our Bibles, it's just magical. All the stuff's so good that's happening and everything. Um, and our circumstances in our lives are going really good. And then some things shift. Maybe just everyday normalcy, things get in life get boring and routine, whatever. And we go through it and we'll call it, we even talk about it with one another as, man, I'm in a dry season with the Lord, right? The rain doesn't seem to be falling. And our spiritual lives, month after month, year after year, will be us just kind of recounting how things are going up and down and up and down. And this is how we'll talk about our spiritual lives. And what I want to show you today is that God never designed our spiritual lives to go like this. Now, good and bad times come. But our lives were never meant to be defined by our circumstances. Instead, what we're going to see today is that God says our lives are to be like a river. And listen to me. In a river, there is always fresh water flowing. And I'm telling you, there is fresh water for your soul today. And you don't have to conjure it up. You don't have to wait on the rain to fall. It's coming. The water is there for you today. The life God created you for is the one where grace, the grace of God is constantly flowing from the source, always moving to us, and always moving from us. So we're going to get into it and see this. And let me say, um, ah, how many other things do I want to say in the longest introduction? We're going to get into verse one. Um, this letter, the, the letter of the Philippians, is a really good beginner letter if you've never really read the Bible before. So you're, you're newer to church and things like that. This is a great letter because it's kind of written with a logical progression of thought, like you or I would write a letter. So it's an easy one to start. It's very short. All right, it's four chapters. I would encourage you, maybe one of your applications for um, this series is just read Philippians every day. Because when I come in here and try and tell you just about a little bit of it, there, it's like I'm trying to show you a little glimpse into something that's really big, and I don't have time to show you all the big things, but you can look at it all every day, just really short, take you, I think, 15 minutes I read it in, um, and I'm not a fast reader. All right, verse one, here we go. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy. Okay, let's, uh, I'm going to stop right here at the comma, okay? Because he's about to say then, but we got a whole lot happening in that if before we get to after the comma then, okay? This, this section of scripture, we're going to get to about verse 18 today. It's kind of like, we're going to call this some Jesus lasagna, all right? Here's why. You're going to get like, let's follow me, you get like a layer of Jesus, like that, you know, lasagna has layer of pasta, layer of sauce, layer of pasta, layer of sauce, right? 
You're going to get like a layer of Jesus and then how we respond to Jesus. And then another layer of Jesus and how we respond to Jesus, all right? And if you're like, well, what's the cheese? I don't know. The metaphor breaks down. All metaphors break down. But you get the basic point, right? Yeah, the basic point. That's kind of where we're going. So this is that first layer. He's starting with Jesus. And I want us to soak in verse 1 a little bit. We could easily go past that because there's so much beauty in this chapter. But this verse emphasizes something at the very core of the Bible's teaching, and it's something that we Christians often miss or skip over or assume. Paul says, if, if and only if you do have encouragement in Christ, then, and we haven't even gotten there yet, do the action steps that follow. But you can't do the action steps that follow unless the if is really there. If you have received water from the source of the river, then you can give it away to others. You don't obey God hoping that you will receive some fresh water from God. Now, when you obey from joy, you have received it. Now you've received this joy. Obedience actually will increase your joy. When you obey from joy, but when you obey from a place of guilt or from a place of trying to manipulate God into owing you something, it creates spiritual frustration it creates exhaustion. Like, if I obey, then God will give me his favor. Listen, if I do these things, then of course I'm a good person, so surely God will smile on me. That's as silly as standing beside the pond doing a rain dance, trying to conjure rain to come. If I do these things, God will bless me. And listen, people can function inside of a community of believers, inside of a church like that for a long time. And that can be what your faith looks like. I try and do enough good to earn, to receive, to make sure God blesses me. But the gospel says you can't conjure God's love for you, God's mercy on you. You'll never do enough where you could put God into your debt, force him to love you, force him to give you his mercy, his salvation. You can't make it rain. All your charitable, charitable behaviors, all your kindness, all your Christian checklist routines, when you are doing them with a heart that's saying, now, God, because I have done these, you owe me, they are as silly as a rain dance. You can't earn God's love, but you can receive it. You can step into the river. There is a source of his love, an unending, rushing source of love, and all you have to do is receive it. That's 1 John 4, 9 and 10. God's love was revealed in this way. Not that we conjured it, not that we did enough to get it. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son into the world to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. You got to soak in this church. You got to, you must receive love before you ever give love. You must receive the love of God for you before you can ever introduce that love to others. And the reason so many of us slip into this religious moralism is because we are trying to obey our way into God's love instead of obeying from God's love. In fact, here's the way I'd tell you that you can think about it. This will, this will help you. Look, religion, and I would say empty religion, says that we obey so that we can earn God's favor. But the gospel, the one that Paul's trying to, to just get us to bask in this morning, the gospel says that we obey because we have received God's favor. And the difference there is everything. This is our core message at Mercy Church. Your life as a Christian is a response 
to God's love for you given in Christ Jesus. That's why we always talk about the Christian life being a, we say this phrase, gospel-centered. What we're saying there is you never grow beyond the gospel. You just never get out of the river. You always grow deeper into the gospel. So take, um, how about this? I started today with um, talking about giving, the Christmas missions offering, right? Take giving as an example. The same act, giving money, can be made with two entirely different motivations. But what do we know from Scripture? God doesn't care how much you give. He only cares about your motivations, only cares about the heart. One way of giving is the equivalent of religious rain dancing, right? I give to earn God's favor. And the way you know that you're doing it that way, by the way, is if you're motivated by guilt. Well, yeah, there's a missions offering and people need to know about Jesus. So I guess I'll give to this thing. I don't want to be the guy that, or the girl that doesn't give to, to this thing. That's guilt. You're feeling bad if you don't do it because you're worried that maybe God won't bless you. You're rain dancing. But there's another way. The other way says, I'm a child of God. He sent Christ to die for me when I didn't deserve it. In fact, I was running away from him. What a gift. What a gift. I have received joy. I've stepped into this river. I've received joy in my salvation. It was incredible, an incredible act of generosity done to me. So yeah, I want other people to get in on this. So I'm going to be very generous and open-handed with my finances and any opportunity to give to that end, I'm in. Sign me up. You see the difference there is same act, two totally different hearts, and the Lord cares about the heart. Verse 1, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any consolation in love, you see what he's saying? Have you been, here's the question, Paul is saying if, if there's any encouragement for Christ. So here's the question for us, church. Have you been encouraged in Christ lately? Have you been consoled by his love? Do you allow the spirit of God to actively lead you? When was the last time you sat in awe of God's love for you? I would argue that for most of us, you can't do that with a sermon podcast on one and a half speed as you're driving down 77, trying not to yell at everybody else trying to drive down 77, right? When was the last time you just sat in it, stepped into the river and were amazed at the amount of love, the depth, the overwhelming love of God for you? What a gift. Listen, his love is to be the fuel for your life. That love is available for you today again, just as fresh as it was the very first day you experienced it, Christian. The very first day you experienced it, that water's still running fresh from the source. That's where joy comes from. I was surely dead in my sins, and God saved me, and he holds me. Look, God saved me. God says he's with me now. We're going to see that in a minute. God is still with me, working inside of me. And he promises me eternity with him. That should lead us to a place of joy. And that love will change me. That joy will change me. Y'all, this is the secret of Christianity, of real change. Not just empty religion where we go through the motions, but real life change. This is it. In fact, St. Augustine, I know I quote him a good bit here. This guys from like the 300s, African theologian who just got it. And um, in his book, City of God, he talked about this, the key to life change. Here's what he said. He said, the key to life change is not in changing by an act of the will, not in rain dancing, but in changing the loves of the heart. And how do you do that? You step into the river. 
you again look into God's love for you. Verse 2. If there's any encouragement, etc., make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. If you've received encouragement in Christ, then Paul's talking to his church. You know, he's their pastor. He says, make my joy complete. My heart's going to be filled with joy when I see the gospel working among you. And when the joy of Christ goes to work on a group of people, they start to think the same way. That's not brainwashing. That's Christ individually becoming the greatest source of joy for each one of them. And then they start to lock arms together. You have the same love as others, the love that Christ has for you. You're united in spirit together. He's talking about this, uh, you know, some people will call this the esprit de corps, right? The energy and power that comes from a group of people sharing a common heartbeat. The way I think about it um, in our day would be uh, when you're in Panther Stadium and somebody starts hitting that drum, right? You're going in the fourth quarter and you start hitting the drum. If you've never been to Panther Stadium, there's a, a guy or girl that'll hit a drum. It's not that hard to imagine, okay? Just hang with me in here. Pretty simple. This guy's hitting the drum, and then everybody starts shouting, keep. Yeah, see, we know it, right? Keep pounding, keep pounding. Now, and it, if you know where that comes from, it even gets you going even more because you know that the guy that said that first was Sam Mills, who was a linebacker in the 90s, the late 90s for the Panthers, who then became a part of the Panthers organization. He battled cancer, ended up dying of cancer, and he's in this pregame in a really important game for the Panthers, and he's giving the pregame speech. And he says, guys, I had cancer, and I had the option to either quit and die or to keep pounding. And I chose to keep pounding, and you need to keep pounding on offense, you on defense, you need to keep pounding on special teams. Every play, you need to keep pounding. And I'm like, yeah, like that'll get you going, right? So then we all get in there, we're like, keep pounding. We're all pumped, right? The same spirit as we're just pounding, pounding. And it's like, man, this is really exciting. Y'all, that, as fun as that is, that's just like fan unity around a sports team. All right, that, that's what, what that is. Nothing, nothing compares to the unity of a local church when it is locked arm in arm, serving each other with the love of Christ, together focused on their one purpose, which is storming the gates of hell and bringing people from death to life because the power of God is inside of that. That's what I want to be a part of, and that's the kind of church I want to be a part of. That's got Paul all riled up, and so he keeps going. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. You got the same purpose, so now here's how you turn and look at each other. By the way, um, this is our second layer of the lasagna, okay? So we got the Jesus, now here it comes, how we respond. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Paul is reminding us, what is he doing? Of our natural instinct to choose self over others. I mean, just think about holiday season for you. Okay, or at least for me, my family, um, my aunt, which is a southern way of saying aunt, like my dad's sister, it's not a bug, but you know, um, my aunt is going to come into our uh, family gathering and she's going to take a picture of the family. We're all going to get together, squeeze in, squeeze, you know, and she's going to back up and we're going to take the picture. And then that, she's going to go to Walgreens and she's going to turn that picture and a bunch of others that she's gotten off the internet um, of us and she's going to turn that into a calendar right? And it's going to, then she's going to give the calendar as a Christmas present, and I'm going to open that up. And who is the first person I'm looking for in that calendar? Me. That's right. Why? It's just how we are geared and wired. Was I smiling? What was I wearing? So on and so forth, right? We are always thinking about ourselves, and Paul's going to turn around and say, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. 
Instead, look after the interests of others. Interest is a very open-ended word. That just means whatever they got going on, you need to look after it, right? You need to help them instead of yourself, whatever it is, whether that's financial affairs, maybe that's health, health problems, education, career, whatever. Don't just work hard on your own. Work at serving others in all those areas. I, was, I had a great time talking with our high school students, middle and high school students, before our first service. I go in there to get kind of like figure out how this whole thing applies. And we're sitting there, we're talking, we're like, yeah, there's a lot of ways we can give ourselves a way to serve others. And all of theirs, a lot of theirs revolved around, um, I will sleep less so that I can help others. Like they managed to, sacrificing sleep is huge when you're in teenage years and thought it was pretty awesome. Uh, but he's saying, look, make the good of others your interest, the good of others, make that your interest, make that the focus of your work. How do we get there? How do we get from self-obsessing to self-forgetting? It's not easy. I mean, if you're candid, that ain't easy. So Paul says, I'm going to tell you how. You need to look at Jesus. I love how Paul does this. There's a pattern with Paul. Paul is just always talking about Jesus, all right? Always thinking about Jesus. He is, look, he's John 3.30, he must increase, I must decrease. That is Paul's life. I'm praying that for me and for you. So he says, look at Jesus. He'll show you what I'm talking about. Don't look at me, look at Jesus. And what we get next, starting in verse five, is one of the greatest, greatest hymns in Christian history. And it's actually the first hymn, the first song that the early church would sing together. So here we go. Layer, layer, here comes another layer of Jesus. Look at verse five. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Big thing here. The Bible teaches there's one God, the supreme, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present spiritual being. John 1 tells us that one God is Jesus. A couple of weeks back, we were in our Genesis series. We talked about how the God of the Bible is one God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. I can't unpack that all right now. It's not entirely the point here. The point here is how verse 6 finished. While he had everything... He didn't consider what he had as something to be exploited. Your translation might say grasped, which means something to, to hold on to for himself. He didn't consider it as something to use to his own advantage. Instead, what did he do? Verse 7, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. Now, let's be clear, when it says emptied, Paul is not suggesting that Jesus gave up his godness, that he stopped being God. Notice the qualifiers. Even in writing a song, his theology is spot on here. I, we, I love how many songwriters we have that are part of our church. Look at this. He is not giving this up, uh, giving up his theology an inch as he's saying it. He says he assumed the form and he took on the likeness of humanity. Now, what is Paul talking about? Talking about Christmas, right? Joy to the world, the Lord, God, has come. God cloaks himself in human form. And look at how he, look at where he came, look at the family he came to. He didn't come into a king's family. So he took on the form of a servant. He was born into a young couple sleeping with the animals because they couldn't even get a room somewhere. The form of a servant, Matthew 20, 28, this, this Emmanuel, this God with us came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. You see the posture? That's what Paul's trying to get you to see here says, you want to know how to not do anything out of selfish ambition or conceit? Look at Jesus. God who had everything, emptied himself of his status. And then that's how he's going to operate even in human form. He's going to keep emptying himself. 
There's an intentional downward progression happening in this song, and it hits bottom in verse 8. When he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Not exploit others for his gain, empty himself for the gain of others. And, and check that, that last lyric, even to the point of death on a cross. It is possible that if you know the Bible, your familiarity with the Bible may keep you from seeing the surprise of that comment. Why not just speak of Jesus' obedience to death and move on? Why mention the cross? Because death is one thing, but crucifixion is another. The first century Jews who read this letter and sang this song would have shuddered to think not only of their Savior dying, but also the way that he died. It's just hard for us to comprehend how awful the crucifixion was. Because it's not just the torture. It's the representation. It's what the cross meant that was so awful. In a culture that was built on this code of honor and shame, the cross was the most shameful, embarrassing way you could die. And here's Jesus nailed to a cross by the soldiers he created. Here's Jesus on beams of wood taken from trees that he created. Here's Jesus hanging on a cross, looking at people, and he knows their names, he knows their stories, he knows their destinies. The creator is being slain by his creation. The shepherd is being slain by his own sheep. Talk about obedience unto death. The creator of life is being obedient to death. This is ultimate humiliation. And Paul is saying, this is God. This is what he's like. Rethink everything. Look there. Rethink everything you've ever thought about God and his power and majesty. And watch that dying man nailed to a tree, gasping for breath, and see in his death the God of self-giving love. There's the source. Verse 9. All of a sudden, the song turns up. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name because of how he emptied himself, gave himself for others, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The song is skyrocketing upward to the finish. Death couldn't hold Jesus. And so now God the Father sets Christ the Son on his throne in full glory. And one day, he says, you see that? One day. Not right now. Everyone doesn't do this right now, but one day, everyone in every spiritual realm, I mean, everybody, right? Heaven, earth, under the earth, everybody will confess that Jesus is Lord. And he doesn't say anything about everybody doing it gladly on that day. What he's saying is that the victory will be won. The battle between good and evil will end and everyone will see whether they were on the right side or wrong side of the battle. And listen to me, especially if you came in here with suffering, you're one of those that are in here with suffering. This is where the New Testament authors are filled with hope. That this whole story ends with Jesus in victory. And that future glory, that future peace, that future victory, where there'll be no more crying, no more pain, no more tears, that gives me peace, that gives me the ability to forgive and to live with joy in this life, even in suffering. And Paul says, okay, here's what this means for you. Time for another layer. Verse 12, therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, because he loved them, he had seen the progress they were making in the gospel. So now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation 
with fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation. Let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that everything Paul has said about salvation being something that we receive from God, not something we work for. It doesn't mean that he's just punting all that and saying, no, no, now you have to earn your salvation. No, he's saying that when you receive, it's, it's actually it's pretty cool. When you receive this gift from God, there's going to be some work that goes on internally, and then it'll be expressed ex- externally, right? Internally, it's going to be a workout because you're going to be surrendering your desires to God's desires. You're going to be stepping out and trusting, am I going to trust what God says here and do things his way, or am I going to keep my way? You're going to do some battling your flesh against the spirit of God that is now residing and claiming authority over your life. It's going to be a workout. And not only that, you're going to work out your salvation. Listen, faith, that is true faith, James tells us this, it works. And so it will bear fruit. And this gets into the context of the passage, right? Paul is saying, if you have received, then you will give of that. You will give, the the grace of God will bear fruit and others will experience the blessing because of that. And if there is no fruit, that salvation may not be working, which means it may not actually be really there. Don't let it scare you. He's saying, work from your salvation. Work out your salvation. Surrender to God. And then let it bear fruit. Maybe this will help you. God calls you and I to work from your salvation, not for your salvation. Look, I told you, this is like a Jesus lasagna. It's the last layer. It's kind of like we started with, you know, There's Jesus, if any encouragement, therefore do nothing, but instead do nothing out of conceit, but instead serve others, right? And then Jesus, this cool hymn that's right there in the middle of the song, and then therefore do this. If there's any encouragement in Christ, it keeps going. And here's why, verse 13, this is like this great, great news. It is God who's working in you. When you're working that out, when you're wrestling, trying to decide, am I going to trust God or am I going to do it my way? God's working in you, both to will and to work according to his good purpose, He's going to be right there with you, changing you, supplying you with joy and strength for a renewed purpose in life. And then verse 14, do everything without grumbling and arguing. I love this little thing, y'all. This is like, Paul just knows people. Remember, he's writing to the church. Grumbling and arguing is a good way to describe the type of church person that has missed the gospel. By God's grace, I find this rare in the Mercy family, but you just need to see this because we need to see this like one-on-one. Each individual needs to look at this. You might need to ask, listen, this will be hard. You might need to ask somebody you trust and be willing to hear what they say if you are a grumbler. You know what a grumbler is? It's a great English word because it's onomatopoeia, like it sounds like what it is, like grumble, 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 right? The word even sounds that way. Um, Grumbling is like, it's like disagreement and frustration, but without the rage. So it's easier to hide, right? It's just a passive, less visible form of pride, but it will corrode your soul. Don't let it, Paul says. Work instead from your salvation. Step into the river. Receive the joy God gives you. Abide. Find that joy again. And when you do, then when you obey Obeying from a place of joy will actually cause you to increase your joy. So you got to have both. Joy, without obedience, it's just sentimentality. 
That's why I'm saying you got to work it out. But obedience without joy is empty religion. Christianity is this joy-receiving, joy-filled, joy-expressing obedience. So are you obedient? Listen, are you an obedient person to God's commands but grumbling as you obey them? You need to go back into the river. On the other hand, are you one who gets really excited about Jesus but then never obeys him with your life? Listen, Jesus obeyed the Father to the point of death, even death on a cross. You cannot claim to worship a God that you refuse to obey with your life. That's hypocrisy. What's the answer to that one? It's, again, go back to the river. Abide in Christ again. Why? Verse 15. So that you may be blameless and pure, children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation, among whom you shine like stars in the world by holding firm to the word of life. It's a reminder. reminder. It's so critical. We, the church, must love, we must do this, this selfless love to one another, humbling ourselves, considering others more important than ourselves, so that, so that the world can see God. Francis Schaeffer, a great philosopher from last century, said it this way, we can't expect the world to believe that the Father sent the Son, that Jesus' claims are true, that Christianity is true, unless the world sees some reality of the oneness of true Christians. Love, he said, is the final apologetic for the gospel. It's the mark of the Christian. It's what Jesus said in John 13, right? The way you and I love each other, that's going to be the undeniable message that God's love is real because they'll see it. And how do you keep this up? I love this. How do you keep it up? Hold firm to the word of life because God's word is living and active. And if you keep yourself in it over time, it'll change you. All right, like, I feel like I just, universal, every single sermon I preach, the application is read your Bible, all right? Like, this is, because you get in there and God's word starts to work on you. I think about it with this sermon in particular, and I'm like, there's so much in Philippians 2 that you, that I can't get to today, but you can go home and read it and watch the Lord change you as a result of that. Now, let me just, let me give you a couple of handles for this in our last couple of minutes. Philippians 2 is showing us a much deeper meaning of Christmas than we often deal with. So let's talk about this. How do you find that real joy? What happens? Where does it go from you? First application point, point I think, for today is to look deeper at Christmas. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Refuse to let that be only a song lyric. Dive into the meaning that God came on a rescue mission, which means you can't understand Christmas unless you see it as a part of the gospel story. God came for you. Christmas is not a ritual. It is a giant celebration of God's love for you. To use our word picture today, if we're to be rivers, we must receive the joy that is constantly available to us from Christ, constantly rushing towards us. That love, when you look at it long enough, will change you. Religion tells you to obey, 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 and to earn God's favor. Y'all, it becomes exhausting. The gospel, no, it says the love of God will change you. It supplies you with the love and joy you were originally created for, and all you have to do is receive it, and it never stops. New water, new mercies every day. The more you look into it, the more you're transformed by it. There's an old, um, old Christian saying. It's often attributed to John Bunyan, who is an English pastor from the 1600s. Nobody knows for sure, but the point is right on here. Um, he said, run, John, run, the law commands but gives me neither feet nor hands. 
better news the gospel brings because it bids me fly and gives me wings. The gospel calls you to fly. It calls you to something incredible, a new self, to laying down your life and picking up God's, letting God be in charge of your life, doing what he commands. It is a call to die to self. It is a huge calling, but then God supplies all the power you need for the task. So are you immersing yourself in that love, familiarizing yourself with that gospel that calls you to fly and gives you the wings? How can you do that this Christmas? You know, my family, the way we do this, we do an advent calendar, um, and we start, we actually started yesterday, where we read the Jesus Storybook Bible, and there's 25 stories that lead right up to the arrival of Jesus. It takes like 10 minutes. We do it at night, and the point is, the point, all we're doing there, it, it, that doesn't have to be what you do. Maybe you just read Philippians every day this month, whatever it is. The point is to look into the meaning of Christmas, to not lose it. And what will happen when you do and when I do is an increased desire to know and to walk with this God who saved you. You'll experience the joy of Christmas. And Paul says your obedience to God when you obey from joy will bring light into this dark world, which leads right to the second takeaway today. Give your Christmas to others. Consider others more important than yourselves. I told you, layer, 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 right? What was the first layer? If there's any encouragement in Christ, then don't worry about yourself, right? But instead, look after others' interests before your own. And then he's doing it again here at the end. Have the mind of Christ. Y'all, we are to be rivers. And if we ever want to break free from the ups and downs of, of pond life, you got to step into your calling, receive that joy, and you must give it away to others. Now, of course, that's applied beyond Christmas, but let's be practical. We've got these next few weeks in front of us. Let's put some handles on that and seek to give our Christmas away to others. Look at the people in your life. Ask this question. In fact, this is going to be our Christmas question, all right? This is the question you ask this year at Christmas. What can I do to serve? Bloop. You put in the name, all right? What can I do to serve this in my life? What can I do to serve Courtney? What can I do to serve, to serve Zeke, Ben, Ellie, Hattie? What can I do to serve Scott, Jessica, Mandy, Rashard, John, the people I work with? What can I do to serve Brandon, Amber, Jake, Meredith, the people in my community group, right? Each time, what, what can I do to serve? Let's make it practical. How can you empty yourself for their gain? I don't care how old you are. You can apply this. You're nine, you're 19, you're 90. Don't care. If, you, if you're a 90-year-old couple, listen, maybe you can like take the dentures out of your spouse's mouth and like go clean them. Then like put it back in, but you can't grumble. Like, give me this thing, get back in there. And you can't do that, right? From joy. I don't know what you want to do. You know, you got to apply that. I gave you that illustration because most of you that will not apply for, okay? You got to have some way, a tangible way to put the gospel on display. Work out your salvation and enjoy, consider others more important than yourself. When you surrender your life that way, finally, receive the love God has for you. Stop trying to create it. Stop trying to conjure it. Finally receive it. Then you'll experience the joy that you were created to have in knowing God. Here's how we're going to land this plane. We're going to take communion together. So I want you, if you would, get into kind of a, a posture of prayer. Our teams are going to start coming to pass the communion elements. If you're new to church, you're not a Christian, please um, just let this 
pass by you, you're going to see a couple of trays, one with um, some bread on it, one with um, some cups. Just let that pass by you. It is a symbol of the gospel message. And if you're not a Christian, your response is not to take the symbol, but to consider the message. So I want you to take a second um, and do some business with God. I'll give you just a, a couple of minutes. As the trays come, you take what you need, pass, pass it on. But I really want you to, to talk with God right now. One of the greatest things about the, the hope of Christianity is that you, because of Christ, can commune with God your Father. You can pray and he hears you. So I want you to take a second and do that. Maybe you need to confess where you've been trying to earn his favor. Where you have taken pride in being a good religious person. And you need to lay that down. And instead step into the river and say, God, today I believe that you died for me. In fact, if you're not a Christian, you've never done this before. This is how you become a follower of Christ. You don't do a lot of things. There's no checklist. You say, God, I, I believe that you died for me. And I'm repenting of my sins. I'm turning from that. I believe because you died, I have forgiveness for my sins. I believe that. I'm receiving that forgiveness, that salvation from my sins today. Thank you, God, for saving me. Maybe that's your prayer. And Christian, you just need to come back to your first love. It needs to be fresh water today. Maybe it's just been a monotonous season of life for you and you just need to say, God, thank you. Worship him in your own heart and mind. Confess where you have turned away from him. Maybe you've refused to obey or maybe you've been obeying without any joy. For both, just rest in God's love for you.